The following message was recorded at Covenant Presbyterian Church in Oviedo, Florida. Covenant is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America, a community committed to seeing the gospel deeply rooted in our lives and in the lives of our neighbors in the Oviedo area. We welcome you to visit us on Sunday mornings in Oviedo or anytime online at cpcovedo.com. Our sermon text for this morning is Revelation 11, 1 through 14. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled that you would speak to us, though at times we're puzzled to understand the things that we are told. We're always challenged to be obedient to what we do know, and we thank you for your Holy Spirit who assists us in our weakness to teach us, to hold us, and to help us be faithful. Our desire is that we might reflect you, we might serve your glory, and through the encouragement of scriptures, of the scriptures, we might have hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So this morning I want to begin with a picture of people who were just told that they had to go to church. The guy on the left loves that idea. Um, the reaction of the rest, however, can be read on their faces. Um, and for those of you who can't see it, this is really a picture that uh, comes from a family camping trip that we took once. Barb and I had taken, although how I'm throwing her under the bus as well, had taken some of the kids and their friends on a hike uh, to a spot on the Appalachian Trail and the Smoky Mountains that we had visited on our honeymoon. So we were excited to take this brood up the mountain to that place that had been uh, a favorite of ours. This photo, which was taken partway up the mountain on the hike, has become a family classic. Um, I'm apparently having the time of my life. The rest are very close to mutiny and not afraid to hide it. <laughs> but when, not dragging, when I'm not dragging my kids up a mountain, I pastor a church. And so it's my job to say positive things about the church and about how important it is. And I know some of you aren't necessarily there you don't necessarily see it. You're not the guy grinning on the left. You're those sitting on the bench. Uh, I really think that as we take this text this morning, it says some very positive and hopeful things about the church. But it's going to land on all of us differently. Um, again, there are a few like me standing and grinning and saying, isn't this great? Onward and upward. But that's not all of you. Some of you this morning are here because you've been drug here. Now, I'm glad you're here if that's the case. I very much appreciate your presence. I think it's important. Um, others are ambivalent. You're here because you think you're supposed to. But sometimes you think you get deeper relationships elsewhere. You know you're supposed to be here. You're along for the ride but you're still wondering what it's all about, especially when it gets hard to be in the church. And then there are some of you who've had to make yourself come, or more appropriately, you're not here at all because you found the church to be a dangerous place. You're not in that picture at all, not even sitting grumbling on the bench. You're avoiding the church. You've been hurt. You found the church a place of abuse or rejection. It's scary for you to attend. And that makes me very sad because I love the church. It makes me very angry at those who've created such a state of affairs. But even those of you who feel such estrangement and separateness, you're still a part of the church. We are the church. Those who want to be here in the presence of God's people and even those who don't. We're all on a journey together and the church is a critical part of that journey. There's stress and there's difficulty along the way. But the church, nevertheless, is critical and important for us. The church is where we all need to be. The church, we need to understand, is at God is the one who has every intention of preserving his church, even through difficulty and darkness. And it's in the church that Christians are going to find genuine hope. And it's through the church that Christians are going to be enabled to persevere. So even in the dark times, even in your struggles, and even in those times when the alarm goes off in the morning and you don't want to show up and attend a church, know that you have hope as a part of Christ's church. Even when that church or when we ourselves are under stress, it is the church that will persevere at God's side at the end. And so I want you, as we come to this text, to find at least to, to find some 
hopefulness for the church, some way to love the church, because it is the church with you in it that God loves. Now, remember that as we look at Revelation, we're looking at it not as a history that was written before anything happened. It's rather a series of images, of pictures that are given to a church under stress and meant to encourage that church under stress. And as this segment tells us some things about the church and about those who oppose the church and about the future of the church, that's what we need to lay hold of. And it does so through the metaphor, I think, of measurements. And the first thing we see here is the church's existence is measurable. The church's existence is measurable. Uh, these are now some new images. Where, where this is, there is an interlude where John has been given a couple of images, and this is one of them. And there's some strangeness to it. But it's giving us a way of thinking and understanding some things that might otherwise puzzle us. What we have here in this text is not some coded language that's meant to be uh, precisely translated. Um, as people treat it that way, a dozen people come up with a dozen different things. We need to pull back and look at this picture as a whole, that there are some things that are measurable, both in space and time, that there is life and then there's death and then there's life again. So we're going to take all of that in turn. John here is told to go measure. Look at verse 1. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. He's told to measure the temple of God, and that's not some physical building in this case. When people try to understand it as a physical building, there are so many difficulties that arise. This is a figurative way of speaking about the church, which is done quite frequently in the New Testament. The New Testament often speaks of the church as God's temple. Paul himself says to the Corinthians, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? He speaks to the church and says, you are the temple. And we could point to other, um, other examples of that. Um, my contention here is that what John is, is told to do is to measure the extent of the church. And to measure anything is to outline its limits. The footprint of my house is limited. There's a corner here, there's a corner there, there's a corner there, there's a corner there. And when you measure the house, you are marking out the, its dimensions. And it, you are marking out that which is house and that which is not house. To measure the church is to measure its existence. It's to mark out that which is church and that which is not church. Uh, it is to mark out, to identify, to distinguish, to clarify the total number of God's people in a tangible, solid, and precise way because God's people are a tangible, solid, and precise thing. To mark off the limits of the church is to acknowledge that there are those who are in and who are safe and those who are not in and are vulnerable. And those categories do make some of us uncomfortable. I get that. To define those who are in defines those who are out. And this is not meant as a judgment on the character or dignity or worth of those who are out, but to clarify and identify that when God speaks of his church, there is a concrete entity of which he is speaking. And we need to be attentive to that. Both those of us who are in to know that those things he says about the church apply to us, but also to those who might find themselves on the outside to see the significance and importance of being considered in. Uh, we have 
uh, looked at other images where the, the lamb that was, that was slain has a, is the one who is breaking the seals on the scroll. And we have suggested that that scroll is that which is later referred to in the book as the Lamb's Book of Life. There are names written there. And when that book is opened up, there's a certain number of names. And, and those who enjoy eternity at the side of God are those whose names are written in that book. It is tangible. It is given. It is measurable. And that is where we want to be. So the question for us here is, God measures his church. Are you there? Are you in it? And how can you know? Well, okay, we are good Reformed people. And good Reformed people want to say, okay, man, the question is, am I elect? No, it's not. Nowhere in Scripture are we ever told to ask the question, am I elect? If we are, go find it and please show it to me. Uh, no, the question that we are to be asking, the question that you are to ask, the question that I am to ask, the question we are all to ask is best framed by that jailer in the, in the Macedonian city of Philippi who looked at Paul and said, what must I do to be saved? That's the proper question. And if, if those in the temple who will persevere through judgment and opposition can answer that question in the proper way, then they can say, I am in. Paul gave the answer. And you know what the answer is, many of you. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not the answer we naturally give, right? The default answer, what must I do to be saved, is, well, okay, I guess I've got to start going to church. I guess I've got to do this. I've got to make myself better. I need to polish up my resume. I need to stop using that language that I've started to use when I hit my finger with a hammer. Um, we, we tend to answer, what must I do to be saved? We say, are, are we in the right group? Do I go to the right church? Am I a part of the right group within the right church? The answer to how, what must I do to be saved is not, how can I be a good person? But rather, it is trust the person who is good. And that is Jesus and him alone. That's, that's the importance of this measurement of the church. Within those bounds of the church are those who are trusting in Jesus Christ and him alone as the person of goodness and the person who has given his life on their behalf. That defines the church. We tend to measure the church in other ways, financial or social. You know, the good people are in, the bad people are out, the rich people are in, the poor people are out. Those who agree with us are in, those who are of a different party are out. But the breadth of the temple of God, of his church, is going to surprise us. There will be people there that we would have excluded, and the remarkable thing is, if we trust in Christ, you will be there. No matter how many times you question that. No matter how uncertain you are. We're not the judge. Thankfully, Christ is. The temple, the church, is something to be measured. God knows its limits. And invites you to be among those who are in. Now, why is that important? It's important because lots of things are spoken about the church. And if you know that you are within the bounds of the church, then you can say for certain that those things which God speaks of about the church apply to you. The church's existence is measurable. That's a spatial measurement. But it becomes critical to know for those of you who are in the church that there's also a temporal measurement uh, present in this text. 
And that temporal measurement allows us to see that the church's opposition is measurable. And if measurable, then limited. Okay, look at verse 2. John said, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now, this number is important, clearly. We'll get to that in a moment, but notice how the angel continues in in verse 3. He says, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. sackcloth. Witnesses are those who speak to what they have seen, and sometimes they die for it. The word for witnesses here looks very much like our English word for martyr for a reason. But in this picture, John is given this image of a couple of witnesses. But we can't forget that the commission given to the entire church was, you shall be my witnesses. This again is a reference to the church. These two specific witnesses represent the church in the fulfillment of its calling to be a witness to what they have seen, to Christ and his resurrection to the broader world. And these witnesses have words to speak and power to display. If you drop down to verse 6, you see some of the power. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And you say, well, I've not seen us as a church be able to do that. That's not the point. The point is, in the days of the apostles, simply as an example, many remarkable works were done, miracles were performed. Uh, This also has reference to the witnesses of Moses during the time of the Exodus and the plagues, all of which combined to say, God is present. God is here. And our witness, however that manifests itself, the goal of it is to declare and to show that God is present among his people and in this place. These witnesses portray the church in its prophetic role, which incidentally, or not incidentally, is where the vision left off at the end of verse 10, to go prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. those Those are the ones to whom the church is to speak, to witness. And on occasion, and in fact probably in every occasion, that witness comes to an end. It has a duration. Look at verse 7. And when they had finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. The word of God, the witness of the church, the witness of the prophets will not always have or gain a warm reception. Why? Well, the gospel exposes human inadequacy and people do not like having their inadequacy exposed. The gospel calls upon people to surrender their independence and depend on others and people do not like to give up their independence and trust in someone else. This is not a popular message and oftentimes the very existence of the church is a testimony against the ways the world Uh, uh, is acting and that which the world values. And further, the gospel is a call for people to leave a kingdom of service to an enemy of God and enter into the service of the living God himself. 
and the devil does not like that, and he will oppose that, all right? And so all of this together is combined here when we read that the beast from the bottomless pit doesn't let his subjects go easily and will stir up opposition. There is opposition such that when the church, the good church, the church that is doing everything it can to do what is right, will be marginalized, ignored, and opposed, not because of our obnoxiousness, which sometimes happen, but because they are simply being faithful and wanting to serve Jesus in the way that we believe we must. When opposition such as this arises, when the church is pushed to the side, it should never surprise us. I think in America we find it surprising and we object to it and we want to rise up in arms against it. But really, what shocks Americans is common in other cultures. We have seen it. Um, I, you know, I think of that time here a few years ago, and Penny, I don't know how this was ever resolved, but the uh, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship Ministry at Rollins College uh, was it's a Christian body who wanted to have the freedom to simply elect Christians to be those who led this student group. They were excluded from the university because that was called discriminatory, that they wanted to elect Christians to serve as the head of their Christian organization. All right, that's close and nearby. That is good people simply trying to do what they believe they were called to do, being opposed and marginalized by the world. But there are whole nations where churches have to meet in secret and in fear and terror of being found out. And if there is, in fact, any, any temporal progression in the book of Revelation, it's suggested that as, you know, the closer we get to Christ's return, uh, this gets worse, not better. But it's to such situations that this text is meant to bring encouragement. And that comes, in my opinion, in the numbers. Notice the numbers in verse 2, 42 months. In, ver in verse 3, 1,260 days. Both of those, if you calculate a 30-day month uh, and 12 months in a year, comes up to three and a half years, uh, which is an interesting correlation in verse 9 where we read about three and a half days. There's clearly throughout the book of Revelation, a symbolic use of numbers, and we need to resist the temptation to say something is going to be initiated on you know, January 1st and on June 30th, uh, three years later, uh, three and a half years later, it's going to end. But therein lies the importance of the numbers, right? They are all measures of duration. <laughs> uh, things that seem long will end. I promise you, this sermon will end. All right, it will have a beginning and an end. And when it is ended, you can say it lasted this amount of this number of minutes. And when you say something lasts a certain number of minutes, you are saying it started here and it ended there. And what the text is telling us is yes, there's opposition. Yes, there are things that happen. Yes, there are things that are awful, but they end. It is not forever, not this. Oh, there are things for, that are forever, but not this. The point is not to find some occasion on which you can measure 42 months, but to see that there is an end. The witnesses will prophesy for a period of a definite time, and then their witness will be sufficient, and it will be silenced. Their bodies will lie for a period of time, but that period will have an end point three and a half days after it begins, there will be hardship in the church, and then it will end. That's the point of the specificity of the numbers. You know, Elijah lived through a drought. What was it, twice as much, seven years? 
and then it rained. You know, it came to an end. The period of drought came to an end. These numbers may have been meant to invoke some fairly recent lore. We don't know that. One commentator suggests that maybe present in the, in the mind of, of those who, have, who, who told the stories was the occasion where a man named Antiochus Epiphanes stripped the temple uh, before Christ came, entered the temple, stripped it of all its, its Jewish artifacts and erected a pagan image in the middle of it and any who opposed it were brutalized and some were killed and this lasted for a period of just over three years. So perhaps that was the image meant to convey. I don't know. But that, like every other case, had an end time. Opposition has an end. The days of opposition are numbered and again, few of us have fallen under this kind of opposition. I can't imagine it, and I'm pretty well convinced that I would be a lousy martyr. But for a church under attack, it's good to know that God knows, and God will bring justice. God will bring judgment. And by the way, we see that judgment here falling upon those who mock the church, mock the witnesses, mock the testimony. Judgment will come upon them. But that's, that does to me, doesn't seem to be the, the point we need to hold on to. Yes, God will deal with those who oppose us. But the point really is it will come to an end. The persecution of Christ's church, whether it feels minor or major, is measurable in its duration and is limited by divine decree. And I believe that applies across the board, even in those situations faced by some where the church itself has been the enemy. That will be judged and the end will come. And you can know that. You can know that both the church's existence is defined and the church's opposition is limited. But man, on top of all of that is this critical point here at the end that the church's future is the one thing that is immeasurable. Jason ran out of tape. <laughs> we, you know, there's no tape long enough to measure the church's perseverance and endurance. What we're given here is kind of a sick, vivid uh, image of the world's triumph or their perceived triumph. You, you need to hear it again, verse 9. So the, 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 this beast arises, kills the witnesses, and for three and a half days... Uh, for three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Man, picture that. Um, those who oppose the things of God finally are rid of it. They're rid of those who oppose their injustices. They're rid of those who cause them to feel guilty just by offering an alternative. They're rid of those who wanted to worship one exclusive God in peace. They celebrate. They throw a party. They exchange gifts. I mean, what do you, what do you give? What gifts do you give to celebrate the death of a church? It's over, they believe. The church is lost. What they don't take into account that this is God's church whom he has measured and defined and he does not lose and he does not lose his church. That's the point. He does not lose his church. His kingdom and his church are forever. The gates of hell, Jesus said, will not prevail against his church. So John writes in verse 12, but, and isn't it, I'm sorry, verse 11, and isn't it, it's so important. The word but is such an important 
word in all of Scripture. Uh, things look like this, but Jesus had been killed, but, but, but after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. This is so much the key. If you grieve for the church, pray for this, that the breath of God would enter into that which is struggling and weak and, and, and near death, and that the breath of, of God would enter in and give it life. When all has turned against Christ's church, the point is here, he is still not defeated. He will not lose his church. And in the end, those who call upon the name of God will persevere in heaven joyfully triumph. They will stand upon their feet. The church that looked dead, the church the world celebrate, celebrated, the, the, the demise of which the church the world celebrated, will stand on their feet. Look at verse 12. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. Uh, do you see how the, the, the experience of the church re reflects that of Jesus? who was driven and persecuted and beaten and beaten down to the point where he was dead. And I am sure that there were those who were breathing sighs of relief. Finally, we've gotten rid of this pesky Jewish rabbi. And three days later, what? The breath of life, the breath of God entered into him. And he was raised again from the dead. And he ascended up into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, which we just confessed earlier. This is you, people of God. The church will be taken into God, lifted up and brought into his presence where no enemies can touch us. That's your future, church. <laughs> You know, that's the future of all of those who belong to the church. That's the future of your brothers and sisters in other countries that are suffering so much torment now. That's the future of you who have found the church to be a difficult place, unsafe for whatever reason. This is the church of which you are a part, and this is the future of that church. So remember who you are. You are a part of Christ's church. You may feel powerless now, I want us to remember, though, that when, God, when, Christ, when, when Christ's disciples felt the powerlessness and took up swords, Jesus said, put them away. It is God who will deliver his church. Even though we feel oppressed and shut down, and those who are stripped of their right to worship or stripped of humanity or stripped of dignity, our shepherd, your shepherd, Jesus, will not lose you, will not lose his church of which you are a part. There are times I look across the landscape of the American church and I see things that make me wonder why it is such a mess and how God could still honor it. I, I wonder that the devils and those who dwell on the earth must be making much merriment and exchanging presents looking at the demise of the church. And yet... God's kingdom is forever. The pall of death may seem to strangle all life from the church, but after time, there's a pr the promise of God is a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet. So I encourage you not to lose confidence in the church. The church is the bride of Christ. 
He is purifying her. He is beautifying her. He is sanctifying her. And this will require times of trial and struggle and loss, but this is the bride of Christ, and our calling is simply to witness to the reality of God, to continue to proclaim his truth. This is the bride of Christ. God will not lose her. God will not lose you and your presence in the church. As scarred as we are is a gift of God given to us to make her more beautiful. The church's existence is measurable The opposition is measurable, but her future is immeasurable. So that rainy, chilly day that my family made the pilgrimage to Charlie's Bunyan came close to sparking a mutiny. It was a chilly day. It was windy. It was cold. But my family persevered, and it's perseverance that ultimately brings us to joy. I want to share with you another picture. Uh, That's the same day, by the way, probably an hour or two after the first picture, We're gathered on this outcropping of rock, which was our goal. The clouds had cleared away. The fog had lifted. The view unfolded. And this is a group full of smiles. Uh, Perseverance will bring us there. We we call this in the family the penguin hike, um, which really makes no sense to anybody but those of us who were on it. Uh, We had seen recently this this documentary called March of the Penguins, which some of you may have seen. And so one of the things that stood out in this documentary is about penguins in order to withstand the vast Antarctic bitter cold is they will grab it, create these little circles, all right, big circles of penguins. And so that all the ones on the inside warm up and then they'll shift positions and and new people, new people, new penguins will be on the inside and warm up. And believe it or not, on our way up the mountain, we did that. We'd grab these little kind of circles and try to warm each other up. So it's our penguin hike. But you know, what does that reveal? It reveals that we need the church. Uh, we weren't going to get to the top alone. We needed the encouragement of one another, and we needed the help of each other to stay warm. It is God who preserves his church, yes, but in the end, what makes the hike bearable in the process is community. We needed each other. You need each other. We need the church. The church needs you, and it's knowing that and that God has every intention of preserving his church that, for me, makes the church beautiful. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your church. Thank you for whom and you've gathered in this particular aspect, manifestation of it, We pray, God, that we would continue um, to love the church that is your kingdom and continue to serve it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.